you have your copy of God's Word this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Habakkuk. We're quickly working our way to the end. One more sermon next week, uh, and we'll be finished with our study through this book. But this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 15. Uh, an extended passage here, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. And if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 3. God comes from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand, and there is the hiding of His power. Before Him goes pestilence, and plague comes after Him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the curtains of Kashan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare, the rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed us in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devoured the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. You can be seated this morning. If I were to go around the room this morning and ask you to share about a specific moment in your life where you saw God move in such a way that was undoubtedly Him, what would that moment be? Maybe there is one time or maybe there is many. Maybe it was a time where you saw God heal someone miraculously. Maybe it was a time where uh, you were out of work and struggling to get by and you went to your mailbox and opened up the mailbox and there was a check inside or money from some unknown source, but you knew it was the hand and the provision of God. Maybe it was a loved one that you had been praying for and you saw God move in such a way that that person came to Christ and put their trust in Jesus. Think about that moment for a second, that time when you knew for certain that you were witnessing the very hand of God move in a situation in your life. As you think about that this morning, what does it bring to your heart and to your mind and to your spirit? Now, let me ask you a second question. How often do you think about that moment? Whatever it may be, how often does it come to your mind? How often do you recollect on what God did for you? In what moments of time do you think back on that? Now, there's an important reason I asked this question this morning, because it's going to guide our time together as we look at this passage, because this is exactly what we find Habakkuk doing here in these verses this morning. It is a remembrance of the past 
that provides hope for the future. A remembrance of the past that provides hope for the future. Now, it maybe seems counterintuitive to think of that way. Uh, we, we tend to be, as human beings, people that are wholly forward-focused. Uh, we, we look to the future and we see the things that we want to do, and oftentimes we're told to not think about the past because the past is in the past. We don't worry about it anymore. But what we see so often in the Scriptures is that there is a necessary component of the Christian life that behooves us to look back continually, to look back regularly, to be encouraged by what we have seen and what we have read and what we know about what God has done. Now, many of you know I enjoy reading biographies. and In fact, the second largest section in my library is, is biographies. I love old biographies, new biographies. I read biographies on uh, Christian figures and political figures and different things like that. But my favorite thing is I love obscure old biographies. Now, what I mean by that is biographies of people that you've never heard of before that were published 70 years or older than that. Now, there's a reason for that. Now, today, any, any person can print a book or publish a book. You could fill a book filled with nonsense, go on Amazon, and in 15 minutes, you've got a published book in hand. It'll be on its way to you. But 70, 80 years ago, if a book was published, it was because that person had done something significant. Or, or more specifically, in the life of a Christian, they had seen God do something significant in their life. Now, I have read so many biographies of people that, whose names I'd never heard of before, but I picked it up because it was just old, and it was about a person that I'd never heard of before, and was encouraged by seeing the hand of God move in that person's life, and to see the stories of how God did something through them or for them. And it was encouraging to me, even though I'd never knew them, never heard of them, never even know anything about them, but that story of seeing God do something was encouraging to my own spiritual life, because what God does for one, He does for others, because we are all children of God. God does specific things for specific people, but wholly we understand that God moves in the life of believers and in Christians because not because of specifically who they are as an individual, but who they are in Christ. And if we are children of God, we can understand that God moves and does and operates in the same way. The reason that we love biographies, I think, so much as human beings, and the reason that we watch movies is because we love a good story. We, we sometimes even try to live vicariously through watching these stories because we see things that are so impressive or astounding, because the work of God's in other people's life is oftentimes just as encouraging to us as God's work in our own life. When we think about the things that God has done for us, we're oftentimes filled with many emotions. We're filled with hope or trust, confidence, love, and thankfulness. We're thankful that God did for us what He did. We experience love because that's reciprocal to the immense love that God has shown us. We're filled with confidence because we understand that we did not experience something that happened by chance or by luck, but something that happened by the perfect plan of God. We trust because God Himself has worked these things out in our life according to His promises. And we hope because we hope that God will continue to do these things. So this morning, with that thought in mind and with that question on your mind, and we're going to come back to that question at the end, I want to speak for just a moment on this idea, what He did before, He will do again. What He did before, He will do again. Now, as I said at the beginning, exactly what the prophet is doing here is God speaks to the prophet, and now as the prophet prays, 
We really see a theophany taking place. We see a picture of God and the way that God had moved for the nation of Israel in times past. Now, remember, Habakkuk here is is thinking about what's getting ready to happen because God has told him that judgment is coming to the nation of Judah and judgment is coming through the hands of the Babylonians. This wicked, evil nation is going to come in, is going to destroy many people, going to carry the rest of them into captivity, going to tear the city of Jerusalem down and just destroy everything. It's going to be a cataclysmic event and they're going to be carried off into isolation for 70 years. But God has promised. He said, Habakkuk, that's not going to be the end of it. In the end, I will redeem you. I will bring my people back. I will see to it that the Babylonians are crushed and that you guys will be reconciled back. This is what the prophet is thinking about. Now, you would think if it were probably any of us, we would not be thinking about anything else but how to make preparations for that. Right? How, how are we going to endure what's going to happen in the future? Maybe we should try to hide some food, right? Maybe we can be the uh, Habakkuk could have been the original doomsday prepper. He's like, we're going to put a bunch of food, store it aside, and we'll try to secretly hide it away. So if we need food, we'll have it to go there and we'll have it to get. But what's interesting is that even though the prophet is thinking about what's to come, he finds his hope in not what might happen. He finds his hope in believing and trusting on what had already happened in finding the providence of God to be a comfort for his soul in times of difficulty. So he's going to continually look back. He's going to continually talk about what God had already done for the nation of Israel, what he had already done for the people, so that they could be encouraged that God would continue to do the same for them. What he has done before, God will do again. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at several things that Habakkuk calls the nation of Judah to remember about God and the way that he operates. And the first thing I want you to notice is that we need to remember the Lord's glory. Look at verses 3 and 4. He said, God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. The first thing I want you to notice here is that Habakkuk points out that God arrives on the scene. God is not going to leave his people in anguish. God is not going to leave his people and abandon them. God comes and God comes at the very precise and perfect time. We often have to remind ourselves of this fact, is that our timing is not God's timing. But God is never early and God is never late. He's always right on time. And we can see how God perfectly orchestrates everything all throughout the entirety of the Bible. Every single event that happened in the Bible, every single event that has happened in human history, from the very beginning when God said, let there be light to this moment right now here In 2023, every single thing that has happened on the face of the earth has happened according to the providential and purposeful timing and plan of God. And so Habakkuk is trusting in this. And he knows that God will arrive exactly when the time is right. So he's now looking back to this idea of when God delivered the nation of Israel out of the Egyptian bondage. And we can understand that because he points out a couple of places here. He talks about Taman, which was a desert oasis in Edom, and Paran, which was west of Edom across the valley. Both of these were south of the nation of Judah. 
And it was the path of deliverance which, which God had brought his people out of Exodus back to Israel. So basically what Habakkuk is signifying here is that God is coming to set his people free and he's marching as an army would, he's saying, out of the south and coming up to the north as he did when he brought the people out of Egypt. He's just trying to paint a picture here of God's deliverance, but also of God's covenant faithfulness with his people. God is going to arrive on the scene just at the exact right time, just as he did with his people in the nation of Egypt. They had been there in bondage for hundreds of years, laboring to build the pyramids, laboring to build all these buildings, suffering under the hands of Pharaoh. But at the precise moment, at the right time, God sent Moses, and Moses marched in and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh, he, Pharaoh refused. He, his heart was hardened. By who? By God. And why was Pharaoh's heart hardened by God? Because God was accomplishing his perfect plan and his perfect timing. And they went through all those 10 plagues, the final one being the death of the firstborn. And finally, Pharaoh relented to allow the nation of Israel, millions of people. We, I hope you understand the fact that this, we're not talking about just several thousand of people. We're talking about millions of people that were marching out of Egypt. This was the entire lifeblood in, in essentially of the nation of Egypt. This was the workforce. You know, now, we complain today because you go to the fast food restaurant and there's not enough people working in there. Right? Every place seems to be struggling to find people to work. The entire nation of Egypt is going to be experiencing this because every one of the people that are working, all of these slaves are leaving. And they're marching out because God is delivering them. God is carrying them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the desert, and heading towards the promised land. Why? Because God had covenanted with his people that I will be your God, you will be my people. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Because we oftentimes think that when we walk through difficulty, that God has abandoned us. When we walk through sickness, disease, trial or tribulation, depression, anxiety, whatever it may be, we feel like sometimes when we walk through those things that God has abandoned us, that God has left us. But brothers and sisters, we need to understand that we are not immune to difficulty in this life. The nation of Israel did not cease to be the people of God because they were in bondage in Egypt. The nation of Judah would not cease to be the people of God because they were going to be in bondage and in captivity in Babylon. They remained the people of God, and God still remained faithful to them, although for a season it seemed as if things were not the way they wanted them to be. Ultimately, God would fulfill his promises, and he will do it for you. We're all going to walk through seasons of challenge and of difficulty, but God will fulfill his promise to you. Take hope in that. This is what Habakkuk is wanting the people to understand. Is when we look back at the history of God's people, we see God has covenanted with his people to be faithful to them, and he will never break his promise. So he says God is coming. He's arriving on the scene. Now notice, immediately there in verse 3, he, he, he only says two things there. God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And then notice there, off to the side there, you're going to see that word Selah or Salah, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Now that's a word that we don't see anywhere else in the Scriptures except here and in the book of Psalms. 
And it's because this is really a psalm. It's a song that's intended to be sung by God's people. And that word really means to pause or to be reflected upon. Now, it's not intended to be read. Now, if you'll notice when I read the text earlier, I didn't read that word because it's not intended to be read. It's just intended to be there to let you know that after you read that verse, you should pause for just a moment to reflect upon what you just read. And what's interesting is, is that Habakkuk puts that there so early in this, right? Because in our minds, what really has he said? Because he's only just talked about God moving through the desert. But when we understand what it means for God to arrive on the scene, when God comes to accomplish his purposes, there is a pivotal moment which we must stop and reflect and consider what that means for us, that God has arrived on the scene to accomplish his purposes in our life, that God has arrived to do exactly what he has covenanted to do. The second thing I want you to notice here, not only does God arrive, but God displays He displays himself in glory and splendor as he arrives on the scene, kind of moving through the desert, moving towards the nation of Judah, coming and in this remembrance of what God did for his people in bringing them out of Egypt. Habakkuk describes his glory and his splendor as rays of light. Notice what it says. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. It's interesting because it says that his splendor covers the heavens. Habakkuk is saying that as God's glory, the the eminence of his glory, and really the only way that as humans we have the ability to, to kind of describe the character of God's glory is just by this immense bright light. All through the Scriptures, this is how we see it described. It's just the brightness of His glory. Think about the, 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 the brightest light you've ever seen. And then magnify that by millions, I would say. We know how dangerous it is to go outside in the day and gaze up into the sun. Just a few moments of gazing into the sun will cause you to begin to go blind. And Habakkuk says here that when God's glory arrives on the scene, that his splendor covers the heavens, literally what that means is that the sun and the moon seem dim in comparison to the glory of God. So it's something that's recognized. And his glory spreads to every part of the earth. And it's, it's this idea that the entire earth is now filled with his praise and with his glory and his splendor when he arrives on the scene. Because when God begins to move, it cannot be denied that it's him who is doing it. When God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, there was no denial that this was the very hand of God that was doing it. No one would have said, oh, well, they just finally decided to pack their bags and leave. Well, they couldn't. They were captives. They were slaves. They had no power. They had no might. They had no authority to do so. At that time, the nation of Egypt was the strongest one in the world. How would this nation of, uh, of ragtag people who had nothing to offer be able to just decide to move out on themselves? The only way that it could be done was by the glory and the power of God. The prophet continues to describe the glory of God in increasing fashion here, first as the sunlight peeking over the hills. He says his radiance is like the sunlight. So in the morning, if you're up early and you see the sun begin to kind of peek over the hills, you begin to see those first rays of light. Then as the sun continues to come up, then its piercing rays spread out upon all of the earth. And the description is, is that as God advanced, the light was 
focusing and spreading out over every place. He says he has rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Because all this light has to have a source. And that source is the person, the being of God. And so all this light, although it emanates out and goes over all the world, it eventually is all pointed back to him that his hand, his glory comes from him, and that is where the power comes from. The power is not in the light. The power is not in the brightness of itself, but the power comes from the very hand of God. Now, the light that emanates from God really serves two purposes. Number one is to reveal his glory, and second is to veil his power. Remember what happened when Moses was there on the mountain, and he asked to to see God face to face, and God said, well, I'll let you see me from behind. And so God covered Moses there in the face of the rock, and he passed by, and he allowed Moses to look out and just see him as he, as he walked away. And just that was enough that when Moses came down off the mountain, his face so shone with the glory and the radiance of God that it terrified the nation of Israel. So God's glory here is, is veiled and hidden back, but, but his glory shines bright so that people are filled with awe and splendor to know that God is doing his perfect work. As the prophet looks out and he thinks back on what God did in bringing the nation out of Egypt, what God did on Mount Sinai in revealing his glory to Moses and then ultimately to his people what God had done countless times before when his glory and splendor had been revealed, Habakkuk was filled with awe and joy that what God did before, he will do again. He would reveal his glory and splendor in a new way. He understands when the nation of Babylon would fall. Just as God's glory was revealed when the great nation of Egypt was fell at the hand of God when God's people were drawn out and then ultimately uh, the, the soldiers and Pharaoh were, were taken into the bottom of the sea, God again would reveal his glory and splendor when the great nation of Babylon would be crushed to utter destruction as God's people were brought back out. The second thing Habakkuk causes us to remember here is the Lord's power. Look at verses five through seven. He says, before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. They saw the tents of Kishon under distress, and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. God's power here is revealed. As God moves across the world, in time or in place, He can and does strike down His enemies with pestilence and plague. We saw Him do it in Egypt. We've seen him do it in pestilence and other times, and God comes in the fullness of his power. God operates in ways that might sometimes seem counterintuitive to the way we would expect God to work. But God will use whatever sources are available to him, and every source is available to him because he has created all things. One commentator said, God is no little old man upstairs who dotes on people with sweetness and light. He is all-powerful as he is all-loving. His grace and glory are coupled with might and majesty. 
So as God moves, he, he sends out these destructive forces to accomplish his purpose, to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his glory. And notice what it says in verse 6, because what we have here is a culmination of a moment, because here is God moving across the south, coming out of Taman and Paran. He's moving across this, this cloud of glory, this brightness of light. Pestilence and plague is coming after him as he destroys those who stand in opposition to him. And in verse 6, it says that he comes to this moment, it says that he stood and he surveyed the earth. So he comes across the land in glory and display of power, and he comes to this place where he's going to stop and begin to do his work. And as he arrived, he looks and he surveys the situation. He looks at the nation, so he's looking at those who are in opposition to him. He's surveying the nation, surveying those who stand against him. And notice what it says about that. It says he looked and startled the nations. Just by God's very look on them, these nations who have stood in opposition to God, these nations who have stood in opposition to God's people are shaking in their very boot. When they see the glory and the splendor of God in operation, they can do nothing but cower in fear at the very hand of the living God. But Habakkuk goes further. He says not only were the nations shaking. He says the mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. The hills and the mountains are shattered and crumble and fall before him. Now, why is this such an important picture of the glory and the power of God? Because if we were to think of something in this life that is resolute or firm, strong, we would think of mountains. Right? People characterize mountains. When you talk about mountains, you think about something that is firm because mountains are what? They're rocks. They're, they're these huge monolithic creations. Think about Mount Everest. Think about the Matterhorn. You think about all of these great, huge mountains of rock, these massive creations. But Habakkuk says that when the glory and the power of God comes, that even those things which we consider as the strongest, as the most powerful created things on the earth, crumble at the very presence of God. Habakkuk is saying, if the majestic mountains, if these rigid, rock-hard things themselves cannot stand, what nation, what individual could ever hope to survive the power of God? We, we tend to think about people rising to power, and we're told all the time, well, we need to be afraid of this country and this political leader, right? They, they, have, their, they have their hand on the, on the nuclear button. They, they have the power to do all this. Well, brothers and sisters, let me remind you that if the very mountains dissolve before the presence of God, there is no political leader, no nation on the earth that can stand in opposition if God decides to move. And this is what Habakkuk was reminding his people of. He says, the nation of Babylon looks overwhelming, right? They, they, had, they had slaughtered every other nation, and they were coming for the nation of Judah. If there, was a new, if there was a news agency in, in, Bab or in, in Judah, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, it would have just been 24-hour news. Babylon's coming. Prepare yourself. If Babylon's coming. It's going to be the most horrible thing we've ever seen. We've never seen anything like it. But Habakkuk is reminding them, look back at what God has done in the past and be comforted that when the glory and the power of God comes, as he promises that it will, no nation can stand before him. They will fall. Now notice in verse 7, 
He says, I saw the tents of Kashan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. These two nations were the neighbors of Israel on either side of the Red Sea. They had witnessed God leading his people out of Egypt and then witnessed their walking through the wilderness for 40 years. And as they had watched God part the Red Sea, as they had watched the pillar of fire by, by, by night and the cloud by day, these other nations were thrown into distress. It says they were trembling as they watched the power of God operate on behalf of his people. Again, think about this idea that as, Egypt, as Israel is coming out of Egypt, Pharaoh suddenly changes his mind because he realized what this means. He's like, our entire nation will be destroyed because we don't have anybody to work now. We don't have anybody to build all of our buildings. So he changes his mind and he begins to chase after the nation of Israel. And they come to this pivotal moment, right? They're, they're surrounded. They're here at the Red Sea. The only way forward is just a body of water in front of them. Talk about an impossible circumstance. But God commands Moses to, to lift his hands, to lift his staff. And what does God do? God parts the waters. Let's be very clear this morning. This is not a metaphor. God literally parted the waters of the Red Sea, held them back so that the nation of Israel could walk across, what not on muddy ground, but on dry ground. There is the, the power and the majesty of God seen in this. Now think about this. These other nations watched this happen. They witnessed this and they understood this nation serves a God who has the power over creation, not to just control things, but to part the very waters and cause the ground to dry up so that this entire body of people can move across to the other side. And then they saw the waters crush back down upon Pharaoh and his armies. And then they watched as God's people wandered through the wilderness, but their shoes never wore out, their clothes never wore out. They had food that came from heaven every day water out of the rock. God provided for his people. So the nations looked and they trembled. They, they shook. It says their tents were shaken. Why? It parallels back to what we saw in verse 6. They saw the glory and the majesty of God. And if the very mountains would melt away at the protect, at, at, at the, would melt away at the glory of God, what hope did those whose only protection was the canvas of a tent have. They didn't have a mountain to hide in. All they had were tents, and they understood the glory and the majesty of God was so great that it caused them to tremble. This amazing power of God was truly a comfort to Habakkuk, and it should be a comfort to us. When we understand how powerful God is, when we understand his glory and his majesty, it should bring great relief to all of us who are his children. Because he's watching over us, he's keeping us, and he's doing it all what? By his power. The same power that brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. The same power that caused the Red Sea to part. The same power that kept Daniel safe in the lion's den. The same power that kept the three Hebrew boys safe in the fire. The same power that watched over Paul and Peter and the other apostles and kept them through, through shipwreck and beating, all of those things. God's power is not thwarted. It's not overcome. God will still continue to do by all things by his power. And so we know that what he did before, he will do again. The third thing I want you to notice here is the Lord's deliverance and it's verses 8 through 11. He said to the Lord rage against the rivers, 
Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses or your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains you saw, saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It's lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Habakkuk, again, now more specifically, calls back to the deliverance of his people, God's people from the nation of Egypt. Now here, no questions are asked. I mean, so excuse me, here questions are asked. Notice there at the beginning of verse 8, he says, does the Lord rage against the rivers, or was your anger against the rivers, or was your wrath against the sea, that you rode on your horses on the chariots of salvation? Now, the answer to each one of these questions is no. God was not angry at the rivers. God's anger was not wroth against the rivers or the sea. He was not angry at the elements of nature itself. He was just using them to display his power and to display his glory. Now, think again of rivers. We talked a moment ago about mountains. Now think about rivers. You think about the, the mighty Mississippi or the Colorado River or the Nile River or the Amazon River or the majestic Pigeon River. The one thing we understand about water is that it's hard to stop the power of water. Once it begins to flow, it's almost, it's nearly impossible to stop by small human effort. You can't walk out into the river and just hold your hands and hold back the tide of the water. And in the same way that God had exerted his power over the most natural of elements, so God too would exhibit his power over the most powerful nations on earth. As God demonstrated what he would do there in the Red Sea, he was demonstrating what he could do anytime he wanted to. God was not angry at the Red Sea. He was not angry at the, at the Jordan but he used those things to demonstrate his power as the waters were pulled back and as the Egyptians made their way in chasing the Israelites. God, at the perfect moment, when all of them were exactly where they needed to be to be crushed, God let the waters loose. Just as he had held them back, he let them go again. So he was using the power of this natural element to demonstrate his power and glory over the most powerful nation on the earth. And in doing this, Habakkuk said that he is like a victorious warrior riding forth with his horse and his chariots. It's another contrast here. It's another contrast between God and his power and the nation of Babylon. Because the Babylonians were known for their great armies. They were known for their horses and for their chariots and for their warriors but here Habakkuk is pointing out how God riding on the waves of his power is a rider on a horse coming with the chariots of salvation that not even the majestic Babylonian army could overpower. He would come in with his glory and splendor and crush them to defeat. So there's not only deliverance from Egypt, but there's a deliverance from nations entirely, because it wasn't only the nation of Egypt that the Israelites had to fight against, that God's people had warred against in different times, but God had demonstrated his power not just in Egypt, but for any other nation that deserved his justice, wrath, and anger. 
Any other nation that came against the nation of Israel, God would demonstrate his power against them. Eventually, he was coming for the Babylonians. It's going to seem for a while that they have the upper hand, but one day God would turn the tables and bring them down. And notice what he says there. He says, your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. As God begins his action of deliverance, when we see him moving in power, his bow was made bare. What that means is his bow is uncovered. It's the picture of a warrior pulling the bow out of the sheath. Now, you only pull your bow out really particularly for one reason, and that's to go to battle. And so here is God pulling out his bow and making the arrows ready. It says that the rods of chastisement, that's the arrows, were sworn. What that means is they are called for. So it has now come time, Habakkuk says, to remember that God is ready at any moment to send justice and vengeance to those who deserve it. He is the warrior who stands with the bow in hand, arrow in the other, with the, with the, uh, with the string of the bow pulled taunt, ready to go to battle. And as Habakkuk thinks about this, notice what he does again there at the Part, that part in verse 9, he again calls us for a pause because we need to stop and we need to think about the power of God. We need to think about his ability to do what he can do. There is nothing on this earth that is too great for God to do. There is no nation that is too powerful for him. There's no situation that overcomes him. And he's ready to do it whenever the time comes. But I want you to notice thirdly here in this section is the deliverance through nature. God's power is evident in the way that nature responds to him or he demonstrates himself through nature itself. First, the rivers there in verse 9, he says, you cleaved the earth with rivers. As Habakkuk, look, he sees that the very way that the rivers cut into the earth's surface is an evidence of his power. Because God has carved out the paths of the rivers. He has given those things to the earth, and he is demonstrating his power in just such a simple and a subtle way. Now, in verse 10, he moves to the mountains. He says, the mountains saw you and quaked. We see an earthquake happening. He says, the downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice and lifted its hands in praise. The language that Habakkuk uses here to talk about the mountains quaking is the word writhed which describes how a person acts when they have a seizure. So when God appeared to Moses, the the mountain was shaken. An earthquake happened. The mountain itself quaked at the glory and the majesty and the splendor of God. Again, think about this. Because we think about the foundations of the earth to be something that is solid and rigid, but we see here that when God's glory is revealed, that nature itself cannot help but respond. The waters and the seas are moved by the power of God. He says the underground water or the deep waters, he says, uttered forth its praise in lifting up its hands to praise his power. So as the storms rage on the sea and the waters flow forth and, and does what it does, it's almost in a sense, he says, as if the waters themselves are echoing its praise to God. You ever thought about that? I think we can still kind of see that in the fact that when you go and you sit by a river somewhere, there's something peaceful 
about sitting by a river and just listening to the running water. There's something peaceful about going to the ocean, sitting out on the beach and listening to the crashes of the waves. But every single time that wave crashes on the shore, it's praising the glory and the majesty of God that holds it all together, that keeps it exactly how it's supposed to be. The prophet here is pointing to the glory of God as revealed by the very things of nature itself, that God demonstrates his power through the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan, the sending of storms and wind and waves is all the demonstration of his power. Now it says we move to the sun and the moon. Now, we know that God had paused the sun for Joshua. And Habakkuk really alludes back to this and the understanding that God can do this again. He says, the sun and the moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows. The glory of God and the power of God is so great that it seems that the very sun and the moon have to stand still in response to his action, in response to what he's doing. He goes on to say, you struck, um, excuse me, uh, they went at the light of your arrows at the radiance of your gleaming spear. This now is God using the lightning to accomplish his purpose. His arrows and his spears are the lightning from the storms and coming from the heavens. And this lightning would zoom to its target and accomplish its purpose. There was no accidental lightning strikes. Lightning does not strike by chance. It strikes by the very purpose and providence of God. There are so many things that we have a tendency to think, oh, well, that was just bad luck for somebody. Well, no, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. Even down, Habakkuk says here, to the very place which the lightning strikes the ground or strikes its target, God uses the power of nature to accomplish his purposes. And as the prophet thought about this, he was comforted by this. He was comforted by remembrance of the Lord's deliverance from Egypt, the Lord's deliverance from the nations, the Lord's deliverance through his power in operating in nature. Because God's majestic power had been on display in ways unlike anything that anyone had ever seen before. God had been faithful to deliver his people, to keep his covenant. And so Habakkuk knew that what he did before, he will do again. Lastly, I want you to notice the verses 12 through 15 as we remember the Lord's demonstration. Look at verse 12. He says, In indignation you marched through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced him with his own spears, the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. God was going to demonstrate his power again over all the nations. In his mighty power, God had marched through the earth, bringing justice and deliverance to the nations of Israel. You notice a theme here? That deliverance from Egypt is one of those things that the people of God often hearkened back to, not just here in Habakkuk, but in the Psalms and many different other places. Why? Because it was the one thing, not that God had not operated and done many other things for them, but this was like the one event. This was the pivotal moment in their lives. 
not just in the lives of those who were alive, but in the lives of countless generations that they could look back and say, we know we have a covenant and faithful God because of what God did for our forefathers in Egypt. Each one of us maybe have a pivotal moment in the life of our family where we look back and we know that that was a moment that changed the trajectory of our family. And so for the nation of Israel, the reason that Habakkuk continually, even just in these short number of verses, continually goes back and back and back again to the idea of God's deliverance from Egypt because it was the most demonstrable way to remind the people, remember what God did for your forefathers in Egypt. Remember what he did in bringing them out. Remember the power that was demonstrated in his deliverance and be comforted by the fact that what he did before, he will do again. But why did God do this? Why did God march through the earth? Look at verse 12. It says, in indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. God is going to march through and crush everyone and everything that stands in his way. God will not allow anything to stand in the way of his purposes. And what is his purpose? It tells us there. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Why was God marching through in deliverance and justice? Why was God crushing anyone who stood in his way? Because he had covenanted with his people that he would be faithful to them. He says, I'm going to do it for my people. I'm going to do it for the salvation of my people. But more importantly, he says, for the salvation of your anointed. What is that? That's Christ. Why was it important that God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt? Well, because the lineage of the Messiah had to continue. Why was it important for God ultimately to deliver the nation of Israel out of Babylon? Well, because the lineage of the Messiah had to continue. Why was it important for God to do all of those things? Because the lineage of the Messiah, the anointed one was coming. He says, I'm going to keep my covenant promise with you. I'm going to keep my covenant promise of the arriving Messiah, and I will do anything necessary to ensure that it happens. And brothers and sisters, God has made a covenant with us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, that he will keep us We're exactly where we need to be. But he's also made a covenant promise that he will keep us. Why? Why does he keep us? He keeps us because he has said he will do so through Christ. But he also keeps us because he still has a purpose. Now, the Messiah has already come. Jesus has already come and accomplished what he has said to do. But now we have another purpose, and that is the propagation of the gospel. And God keeps us alive. God keeps us as his people. He watches over us and does what he says he's going to do because he has put us here to tell other people about Christ. And the gospel continues to go forth. Now notice the power which God is going to move and how he operates. He says, you strike the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. That's a pretty gruesome sounding, isn't it? Really, the language that's used here has a picture of a building that the gables have been ripped off and the entire thing just collapses onto the ground. From thigh to neck, from the entire person, the entire thing is destroyed. God has done this in the past to all those who had come after Israel, and Habakkuk says God will do it again. And then he causes us again to pause. 
to think of what God is going to do. Verses 14 or 15 tells us that God not only operates in his power and his glory in, in, in crushing his enemies, but he also turns them on themselves. They'll be confounded in their attack because verse 14 says, you pierced him with his own spear. The head of his throngs, they stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. God would cause the nations to attack themselves, to destroy one another. Their pride and their arrogance would lead them to distrust one another and to attack each other. One commentator said their gloating would turn to gore, their pride to panic, and they would suddenly attack one another in deadly confusion. God will always see to it that his enemies are destroyed, and sometimes he allows them to destroy themselves. Now, we don't see this so much today in the fact of armies fighting. But we do see this in the enemies of God who stand in opposition to the Scripture, stand in opposition to God's Word. I always find it interesting when you have a group of people who rise up and begin to deny the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, the truth of God's Word, and they're all on the same team for that. And then something will eventually happen in the midst of that group of people where they will begin to turn on one another. Why? Because God has given them over to it. We don't see people standing in opposition suffice wholly today to the, to the nation of Israel, to the nation of Christianity, or to the people of Christ, so much as we do see people standing in opposition to the Word of God. And as they stand in opposition to the Word of God, God says, I will still accomplish my purposes in crushing my enemies and in allowing them to sometimes destroy themselves. Now, the culmination of all these acts is the remembrance of His great deeds. Again, Habakkuk hearkens us back to the Red Sea. Look at verse 15. He says, You trample on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. As Habakkuk thinks of all of this together, as he thinks about everything that he knows that God has done, as he reads through all the stories that he can see in the Scriptures, all the stories that he's heard from, from different people about God's provision and power, he sees it as if God was riding a horse over those waters there in the Red Sea. That it wasn't the waters themselves that crushed the nation of Egypt, but it was God riding a horse, trampling on the sea on the surge of many waters, as if God rode in there and physically did it himself. Habakkuk is in awe of the glory and the splendor of God. And not to get ahead of ourselves, but I do want you to read verse 16 because I want you to see how Habakkuk responds to this understanding. He says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, of my, at the sound my lips quivered. Because he understands the glory of God. And he understands that what he did before, he will do again. Now I want you to think back to that moment at the beginning of the sermon, when I ask you to recall a story of what God did in your life. And brothers and sisters, know this, that what he did before, he will do again. Those moments when God has carried you through, the next time you are discouraged or down, then remember that what he has done before, he will do again. But don't just think about the things that happen in your life. 
Do what Habakkuk does here. Think back to the Lord's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Think back of the numerous times that God watched over his people as they wandered through the wilderness. Think back of the times of how God took care of his people in the exile in Babylon. Think of countless missionaries, pastors, and lay people who through centuries have seen the hand of God move in powerful ways. And brothers and sisters, let us remember that what he did before, he will do again. Let's pray. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have given us Lord, such an encouragement here. Lord, we, we do, as the prophet did, we stand in awe of your glory and splendor, Lord. It's the only response that we have if we truly understand who you are, if we truly understand your power and your majesty and your glory, Father. The only response that we have is to stand in awe of you. And Lord, help us to remember and to trust that because you are all-powerful and all-majestic and you're full of glory and grace and truth, that, Lord, you will accomplish your purposes. And you have promised us, Father, that you will work all things out for our good. You have promised that you give good gifts to us as your children. Lord, help us to trust in your word. Help us to trust in your truth. Lord, I'm sure there are many of us in this room this morning who this morning or this past week have struggled with doubt or fear or worry because of things in our life, because of things happening around us. But Lord, may we remember that what you've done before you will do again that we do not have to fear, that we do not have to worry, but we trust in the hand of the one who parted the seas, in the hand of the one who kept the, lion, the mouths of the lions shut, and in the hand of the one who will carry us to the very end of our life. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.